Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 114. Hey, I'm your host, Dr. Yami. I'm a board-certified pediatrician, certified health and wellness coach, author, and speaker. I'm also a passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, motivation, and mindset so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Are you ready to get started? Let's do this. The great thing about kids is that they're terrible poker players, right? They show everything, right? They cry, they shut down, they retreat. And so you can pretty much look and read and see something's going on and maybe I need to shift what we're doing in our family because it's just not working for them. Hello, hello, veggie lovers. Welcome back to this bonus episode of Veggie Doctor Radio that is part of the pediatric series of August 2020. So welcome. This episode is so great. It is with one of my friends and colleagues, Renee Slavin, who works here locally in the same town I live in, and she is such a valuable resource. I love how she works with children and she just adds so much value to my patients' lives and this community. And I know that you're going to learn a lot from this episode. So we're talking about stress and anxiety, which unfortunately is something that's becoming more and more common in children. But before I tell you more about Renee, just a few reminders. If you haven't already looked at my freebies, go to dryami.com. That's spelled out D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com forward slash free. I have lots of goodies there. There's probably almost 10 now, different PDF downloads with a lot of information. So if you're looking for a guide on how to feed your children, the e-guide for raising plant-based children, how to replace meat, how to replace dairy, eating out, zero waste swaps, the plant-based shopping list, and more, check that out. That's dryami.com forward slash free. In addition, I recently announced that I now have a Patreon. So thank you, thank you, thank you so much for all of you that have already signed up to become a patron of Veggie Doctor Radio and Veggie Doctor TV so that I can continue to make fabulous, high quality podcast episodes and videos for you about plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, and more. 
So if you are interested in becoming a patron, go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the Dr. Yami, all spelled out. And if you join the $20 level by the end of the month, you will also receive a signed autographed copy of my book, A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy. In addition, if you feel like shopping, you want some appliances or you want, you know, other things that I love, my favorite things, go to my affiliate store, which is at dryami.com forward slash shop. And I will get a percentage of those purchases that will go to support the show and the YouTube channel. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for being a loyal listener. I so appreciate you tuning in, listening to these episodes, subscribing, reviewing, sharing them with friends and family. It means so much to me. We are growing this together. And remember that the information on this podcast is for informational and educational purposes only not meant to replace careful evaluation and treatment by a healthcare professional. So if you have concern about you or your child, whether it's their nutrition, growth, mental health, any of those things, please contact your health professional. Okay, so let me tell you about Renee. Renee Slavin is a licensed independent clinical social worker, and she obtained her master's in social work degree from Eastern Washington University in 2004. She currently owns a private practice serving young children, youth, and families who struggle with anxiety, depression, trauma, and behavioral issues. She has extensive training in pediatric anxiety, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, tick and Tourette disorders, and is certified in trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy. She has had a variety of work experience from direct practice and outpatient community mental health clinic to working alongside families involved in the child welfare system, management and clinical supervision and grant writing and program management of a home visiting program for parents and families with very young children. Additionally, she is trained in play therapies to assist young children with attachment and developmental disorders. Ms. Slavin is also an affiliate professor for Boise State School of Social Work Online. In her spare time, she has two active boys, ages 12 and 9, that keep her busy, as well as enjoying crocheting, baking, and listening to live music. I know you're just going to love Renee, and like I said, I feel that She has just given some great tips so that you can learn to recognize when your child may be experiencing chronic stress, when they may be experiencing anxiety, and what steps you can start to take to help your child or get them the help that they need. All right, so are you ready? On to the episode. Renee Slavin, thank you so much for joining me on Veggie Doctor Radio today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Well, this is such a pleasure for me because I feel like you are just such an amazing resource. And I just want to tell you that I'm so grateful for you for so many reasons. One, because I know I can't do it all myself, but two, because you're amazing. So thank you so much for all the work that you do. Our collaboration has been really amazing. We've worked with some great families together. And I think, again, we're, we're better off having each other in our community rather than just trying to do this by ourselves. 
Absolutely. It's good for everybody. Well, today I wanted to talk about stress and anxiety. And one of the main reasons is because as a certified lifestyle medicine physician, one of the six pillars is to manage stress, decrease stress. And it's one of the things as adults we know, right? Like we talk about all the time. We probably over talk, we talk about stress like too much probably. But it's also something that can affect kids. And maybe sometimes we're not as aware of that because we just think that kids just maybe don't have it or something. So before we get into how children experience stress, can you tell us a little bit about what exactly is stress? Yeah. I mean, I think of stress as just being my own body's reaction to changes and pressures that are around me, right? Um, It's what we feel when we're starting to become worried about something or uncomfortable um, with what's happening around us. Uh, In short durations, stress is really can be okay, right? And, And we can work through some things when we have it. And then it becomes problematic when it's a little bit more, a little more prolonged and a little bit more severe. Um, I think mm-hmm. about stressors that kids feel like with school, right? They're learning, mm-hmm. they're being challenged, um, new things are coming their way. And so they're going to feel a little uncomfortable. They're going to feel a little bit under pressure, but generally speaking, they work through it and they learn and they feel a great sense of accomplishment afterwards. But when yeah. it's too heavy, too intense, that's when it becomes a problem. Okay. And how do children experience or exhibit stress? What kind of signs are we going to be looking for when they're showing these, you know, or experiencing stress? Yeah. I look for kids that stop eating when once they've been pretty good eaters and now they're slowing down and it's not just a growth spurt. Um, I looked for things like they're now struggling to separate when really they'd done really well going to grandma and grandpa's or going to the neighbors. And now all of a sudden they're not wanting to do those things. Um, regressing in sleep where they just don't want to go to sleep. They don't want to go to their own bed um, and creating all kinds of rituals for parents to jump through in order to uh, not make them go to bed. Uh, Anger outbursts, crying and sadness. Um, Sometimes depending on the child's age, they'll start voicing some of those worries or concerns. They'll say, what if, what if this happens, mom? What if this happens, dad? And you can kind of tune in to know they're thinking about things differently than I thought they were. Something must be going on with them. Um, littler kids, potty training is always a challenge. And so when they start regressing and potty training, that's a big flag for me as well. And then just stomach aches, headaches, um, muscle pains that you can't really figure out um, tend to be a little bit concerning. Yeah, those vague kind of body things that we can't really connect to any other issue, but that may be signs of stress. Well, you kind of alluded to this earlier, but is there such a thing as good stress? And how can parents tell the difference between when it's good stress or whenever we're starting to become more chronically stressed, which, you know, I was going to ask you about more to distinguish between just like that short-term stress and that long-term stress? Yeah. I mean, we all have stress, right? We all go through periods of stress and good stress, I think is what really helps us learn. I was thinking about uh, when kids first learn how to tie their shoes, right? It's so frustrating. They're holding the laces and the string and they're trying to wrap and do all that. But once they work through it, right, with support from a loved one that says practice and take a deep breath and we'll try this again tomorrow, then they work through it and they have a great sense of accomplishment over what they just did. They're really proud of themselves for what they did. 
So Mm -hmm. stress promotes our learning. It challenges our brain. It makes it um, kind of expand all those neurons a little bit to gather a little bit more data and to help us work through it. And then we feel really good when it's all over. And those short uh, sprints of stress, right, of working through a new problem, whether it be a puzzle that a kid's doing or riding a bike for the first time, those are great stress. It promotes our learning. It stresses us out in a way that, again, advances us to be able to learn a little bit uh, faster and easier. When it's the chronic sides of things is when it's really taking a toll on us. We're not really learning anymore. We're shutting down. We're having a lot of emotional uh, outbursts with it. Um, and then again, the behavior stuff. We're not really growing and learning. We're not trying the strings uh, to tie shoes. We're not getting back on that bike again. Um, we're not wanting to separate and go to the birthday party like we used to. And those would be things that would make me think, man, they're exhibiting some chronic stress or maybe there's some underlying anxiety that's happening. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that definitely makes a lot of sense. And you're right. I think that It's important to distinguish because I think parents sometimes do have difficulty when they see their children experiencing any type of stress. Mm -hmm. But as humans, that's kind of like part of life, right? Like we have to, we have to feel some discomfort in order to learn and grow and evolve. Like that's just like the process, even physically. Like I think of like our bones and our muscles getting stronger. We have to go through some amount of discomfort in order for that to happen. And the same thing happens emotionally and psychologically too. So I just wanted for you to kind of point that out because I think sometimes parents are like, struggling with like, oh, am I pushing too hard? Or, you know, if they cry because they don't quite, can't get the, learning to ride the bike tonight, am I going to psychologically damage them forever? You know, sort of thing. I think parents do get worried about that. Yeah. And no one wants to see their child in pain or appear to be in pain. And no parent wants to think they're hurting their child. Right. And I always try to get parents to reflect back on what were some things you had to learn as a kid and maybe the hard way, right? Like you don't try out your bike on a hill out of the gate, right? You just don't do that. Right. You're going to fall. Right. Probably skid your knee. Right. And so again, learning those things as you go is how we learn about the world, how it works, Mm -hmm. what things work for us, what things don't work for us. And it's a part of that satisfaction at the end of working through that. And so always bubble wrapping your child, right? Or always helicoptering your child child for experiencing those things really doesn't allow them to get the full experience of uh, what the world has to offer and what they're capable of. Because oftentimes we're undercutting our kids rather than helping them rise to challenges. Because part of anxiety says the challenge is too big. It's too overwhelming. It's dangerous. But as parents, why would we ever set our children up in that way? We wouldn't. And so it's that misnomer. It's that disconnect between, I'm not asking my child to do anything that's not age appropriate or at their skill level. Maybe it has a little growth curve to it, but I know that they can do it with support. But anxiety says, or extreme stress would say, no, danger, danger, I can't, and something catastrophic will happen. Well, Mm -hmm. we would never put our children in that position. So it doesn't really make sense. And so if we take parents a step back and ask them, are you setting your child up to fail? Or do you know they can? Well, then how do we support them and give them that message that you can get through this, you can work through this? Yes. And with each one of those experiences, then they learn from it. So in the future, when they come across something that feels really hard and they're not sure if they're going to be able to do it, they can think back upon that time when they thought they were never going to be able to ride a bike, but they did, you know, obviously learn how to ride a bike. So 
Yeah, I think oh. of it like a vase. You kind of have to let them experience those ones at the very bottom, right? To be able to yes. fill up all the holes of the vase so that the flowers will bloom, right? And if you take away those opportunities, you really are kind of changing their trajectory of how they learn in life, right? Oh, that's so beautiful. I love that analogy. Okay, so say you've noticed that you do have a child that may be experiencing chronic stress. And, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about what, if there's any typical situations that you come across, obviously family dynamics, schooling, things like that. Um, but once you are in that situation where you you feel like it's psychologically or even physically causing consequences for them, what can parents do at that time to intervene and help manage it or, you know, turn things around the right way? Yeah, I always look first at things like sleep, making sure that the kid is getting enough sleep. Um, I think that's one of the number one things for child behaviors in general. And so looking at what's going on in the environment, of course, right, family dynamics that are at play, but also just looking at typical routines and structures. Is every day a little bit wonky? Is every day a little bit uh, chaotic? And how can you create some peace and some calm in your family with expectations and structure and routine um, that can be really important, especially for anxiety? The more I can predict, the more I know what's going to happen in the world, the calmer I will feel and it won't feel so out of control. Um, I think really working early on with feeling identification, you can't organize and fix what you don't know what it is, right? Um, if you've ever had the uh, parent say to the child, or if you've ever said this to your child, just tell me what's wrong, what's wrong? And they're a hot, right? They're crying and they're, right? And so literally they cannot tell you what's wrong because their emotions are so high. And so teaching kids to identify the difference between sad and disappointed, right? Teaching them the difference between anger and maybe feeling hurt um, will help you then as a, par a parent organize their feelings with them. And then you can get to problem solving, but you can't problem solve what you don't know what the underlying issues are regarding that. And I think mm -hmm. feeling identification is a great way. Mm -hmm. And at what age is it appropriate to start talking about identifying feelings with your child? Oh, I love the little kid picture book starting at like 15 months, right? Age two, where you start reading board books and really identifying those things and then using overheads. Wow, you look sad that I said no to the cookie. Yeah, you really wanted a cookie. Um, and being able to use what I call overheads to be able to help them organize that for themselves when you see it in your child. So I think early, earlier the better. Yeah, I wish I would have known this. I don't know. I don't think I did horrible, but... I feel like I kind of learned more the technique of like, we just need to get over this and move on sort of thing, you know, because that's how yeah. I was raised. <laughs> so yeah. that's what I learned. And so it's not until now that I've kind of learned more of the techniques of like validating, because I know that since I wasn't validated for my emotions, that caused some sequelae for me. So yeah, that's that's really good to hear that you can start so early because it also gives the parent more time to practice validating these feelings, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know anyone who was raised this way. I, I really do want to meet someone who was raised in that kind of environment, but I think we're all kind of in the same boat of, we just need to troubleshoot this, problem solve it, work through it quickly as possible. Parents are really overwhelmed and we didn't have all this information back then to know um, the importance of validating emotions, the importance of not needing to fix and to just come alongside and the wave will come and the wave will move through and we can, you know, move on. Um, but parents are really overwhelmed and it's an easier thing, right? 
to quickly think you're fixing it and to move forward than it is to try to figure out the function of it and how to really help with that and worry about that top layer last. Yeah, definitely. And speaking about stress, it is stressful when your child is upset yeah. or has what you think is an upset emotion because you don't, you want them to feel just good all the time. So in, yeah. in the parent's mind, you're like, okay, something's wrong. I don't want it to be wrong. I must be doing something wrong. Or, you know, my child's always crying or whatever, you know, and so you kind of want it to go away. But instead, just like you said, it's more about, okay, recognizing, helping them identify their own feelings and then learning to work through it as well. So that's really good. Can you talk to me a little bit about activities and schedules? Do you find that there are some children that there might just be too much that's that's trying to get crammed in? Obviously, right now, we're not doing that many activities. So it's like right. the polar opposite. But during non-COVID times, I find that there are some families that they're just trying to do so, so much. So what what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think if kids are going to engage in an activity, if parents are going to side that for their kids or their kids are wanting to do an activity, then how do we balance the shoulds? It seems like as parents, we can get this idea of what like we should be doing. We should be putting them in dance and we should be putting them in soccer and we should be providing cello lessons, right? And then we find ourselves so maxed and stressed out that we're not really being with each other. We're not just sitting with each other. We're not just enjoying a board game at night, which I love with kids. Um, and I feel like we've gotten so much more to being so overscheduled that now we have kids that unless they're busy doing something, they don't really know how to just sit and be yeah. and kind of be bored and have to figure out what to do with themselves. And there's a great, um, I think there's some great benefits of kids predicting their world. They know what time they eat. They know what time they sleep, right? They know what time mom and dad come home, but to the extent of that, to max kids out and distress them so much that they're on the go nonstop, that they're really not able to sustain that schedule. I think we tend to see it in kid behaviors. The great mm -hmm. thing about kids is that they're terrible poker players, right? They show everything, right? They cry, they shut down, they retreat. And so you can pretty much look and read and see something's going on. And maybe I need to shift what we're doing in our family because it's just not working for them. Maybe it's great in an ideal setting, but maybe we have to just look at our own kid and say, what is this kid needing that might be different than my other ones? Yes, absolutely. As long as you're paying attention, you can you can take the pulse of how your child is feeding, feeling and how they're reacting to all the different activities in the routine. And can you touch a little bit more on expectations? Where do you see that it could be helpful to uh, adjust expectations in order to help children manage stress and those kinds of things. Yeah, I I think that sometimes we go off as as parents of what we can handle, and we forget that <clears throat> we're dragging kids with us as we go along in that. Right? If I have a plan of the day, and I think I'm going to get these ten amazing things done, and I as a parent am just going to feel like a rock star, right? But I forget that I'm taking my kids with me in that journey of getting those things done, right? What would be some wins? What would be like the top three or four that would be good enough mm -hmm. to get done in that day or to do that day that I can still have a sense of accomplishment, but then I'm also resetting the bar for what my kids can sustain. Just because I can do it and I'm a go-getter and I can pound it out doesn't mean my kids can do that, right? Developmentally, they're not there, right? It's kind of like the parent that has the great plan for Thanksgiving, right? 
And then for whatever reason, they didn't get him to bed the night before on time, but they still have this amazing plan set for Thanksgiving. And sometimes we do have to just take a look at our child and what's going on around them and say, okay, I'm going to have to let this one go because this is not about to work. And it's too Mm -hmm. stressful to put me as the parent through it. And it's just too much to put that on my child and expect them to do it. Mm -hmm. So I kind of like to like set smaller wins and smaller bars sometimes and get that sense of accomplishment. And then always just the ability to say, I can try again tomorrow, right? It probably wasn't that urgent. It probably wasn't that life-threatening that again, if I need to, you know, if I need to exit Target because my kid is not doing well handling in that store for that day, right? To figure out what's going on, right? Then I can leave my cart and I can get out and I can try to take that afternoon to figure out what happened there and what went wrong, right? And how I can figure out how to do that differently the next time. Yeah. So allowing some space for flexibility, it sounds like is going to help decrease everybody's stress level. And I'm just seeing how as a mom that decreases stress too, you know, and, and obviously our stress and anxiety can affect our children as well. Okay. So we talked about things that can help lifestyle habits, basically sleep routine and structure helping children identify their feelings starting even at 15 months when they're toddlers. What are some other things that children can do to help manage their stress? Like, are there any activities that you recommend that you talk to your families about when there's some children that might be experiencing more stress in their lives or to try to prevent stress from building up too much? Yeah, I think The prevention side is really important to know what are some of the triggers, depending on your child, right? If you know that going to Target and Costco is really hard on them, right? How can you set up a system of, we're going to practice some Elmo deep breathing activities before we go in, we're going to use them while we're in, might need some fidgets or some sort of distraction toys to help keep their mind focused on some things. And again, resetting some of those expectations. Um, I think modeling downtime, right? Modeling even my own deep breathing activities in front of them. Man, I'm feeling kind of frustrated right now. I'm feeling a little overwhelmed. I'm just going to take a big deep breath here. Give mommy just a minute and modeling that in front of them to help them be able to have that in their um, repertoire of things that are happening naturally around them. I love kid yoga stuff. I think that that's really great for like body mind connection and helping them reconnect with their bodies and learning how They can control their breathing and they can feel all those sensations and they won't be too overwhelming for them Um, and can actually be used later, right? Like stretch and touch your toes. You look really tense right now. Um, And uh, using lots of uh, kid-friendly analogies. I like to come up with my favorite soup and we smell our soup and we cool it off and we blow it. Uh, We pick flowers um, and we smell those flowers and then we blow all the petals off. And those are easy, deep breathing exercises that can be done with kids. Um, Let's see, progressive muscle relaxation, um, super fancy for how do we tense and relax our muscles that can coincide with um, anxiety. We get really tense in our shoulders and in our jaw. And I like to play a cooked spaghetti, uncooked spaghetti. So we get really tight and stiff as we're uncooked. And then we picture ourselves getting into the boiling water and relaxing all of our muscles. And so just finding some really creative, friendly ways to teach kids some of these skills early on that hopefully, again, when they hit middle school and high school, these are things they're already using uh, regularly that will help them handle those challenges down the road. 
Oh, that's awesome. I, I love all of the different tricks and tools. Obviously, you're an expert, so I'm glad you have all of that, <laughs> those those tools that you use. How about things like journaling or coloring, nature walks? At what age would these kinds of things be appropriate? Yeah, I think, you know, any kid can kind of scribble on some paper and draw their feelings, right? And so that can run the gamut from preschool all the way up. Um, I think middle school is a great age for journaling and starting that process, even fifth grade or so, um, getting kids to kind of start reflecting on what they're thinking and feeling about things, especially as they enter peer world, where there's a lot of pressure and um, maybe known and unknown expectations that they might feel. Uh, coinciding with nature walks and getting outdoors, I think is great. Mindfulness, um, connecting with ourselves and being in the moment, reducing screen time. Um, and taking breaks from some of those um, uh, outside influences that can kind of make us question things and feel subconscious about things. I think exercise is really great, especially for anxiety, getting kids out and walking and riding bikes and rollerblades, rollerblading at the park, um, especially under COVID times right now, we're, we're able to use nature um, in all kinds of ways, which is great. Okay. Yeah. Those are all great tips. Okay. So We've started kind of talking a little bit about anxiety, but can you differentiate how anxiety is different from stress? Because obviously we're going to have some children that are under chronic stress and may exhibit some symptoms of anxiety, but it can be a little bit different. So can you help differentiate those for us? Yeah, I like to think of stress as being temporary, things that are age appropriate or developmentally appropriate that we can handle. We might need a little bit of support, but we generally work through it together, right? And so if I am feeling stressed about a puzzle that I'm doing as a kid and the pieces aren't fitting right, right? To be able to have somebody co come alongside me and say, hey, I wonder if you could think about it this way or maybe take a deep breath or let's just turn the piece a little bit. What do you think? And kind of support someone that way then they work through it. They have the learning that they've incorporated themselves in that sense of accomplishment and they move on, right? For me, anxiety changes course when really learning stops. Anxiety always wants more. It's kind of like a never ending well. So you start to have something that might've happened in your world. Maybe a dog in your neighborhood got loose or maybe you had a car accident or maybe you met somebody that you hadn't met before. And all of a sudden, more and more stress is surmounting, right, about these interactions. So kids are thinking about it. They're worrying about it. They're doing their best to try to avoid those things and situations and people that might have brought them that stress initially. But now nothing is enough, right? So these are parents that these kids are now saying, I'm not going to school. I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying in my room. Bedtime routines have turned into two hours, three hour long, really nightmares for parents because it doesn't matter what they do. Nothing is enough to really get their child to calm down, to work through it and move past it. Mm -hmm. And so what starts is like a grain of salt tends to overgeneralize. And again, nothing is enough to make them feel secure and safe and calm. No logic and reasoning will work. Um, and definitely their ability to try to create a situation where they're not in that anymore. They're not in that, what they perceive as probably dangerous, even though the situation wouldn't be dangerous for them. Yeah. So it could, may seem illogical 
to an outsider that's not feeling that. So what you're saying is that it's pervasive. It can be progressive, getting progressively yeah. worse, and it starts interfering with life, right? So yeah. two hours to go to bed is a long time. Not going to school, that's a big deal. So it's things that are more than it's out of the ordinary sort of things that start happening. Yeah. Uh, I've, I've seen kids with, um, you know, um, eating a Pringle and then all of a sudden it kind of scratches their throat a little bit and now they won't eat any crunchy foods at all. So now you've resorted to every meal being yogurt and bananas and they've completely changed the way they're eating for fear of choking. Now, maybe they can't say that quite yet, depending on the age. Right. But again, looking at what the function is of what they're doing, and then again, how just pervasive, that's a great word, pervasive it gets to be able to um, inhibit their eating that would help them be healthy individuals, right? Healthy in their diet, healthy in their mind. Yes, that's a great example. My son, when he was younger, he choked on an apple. And for two weeks, he had to think every time he swallowed because he had developed a fear of swallowing. But yeah. thankfully, it kind of you know extinguished on its own. I was yeah. trying not to draw too much attention to it, but you're right. Something like that in the mind, because the mind saw that that was danger, but now it's like really stuck on danger, danger, danger. And it, and you know, it just gets worse and worse. So, wow. It's very, can be very dramatic in that way. How common are anxiety disorders in children? Uh, really common. Uh, I think, um, you know, kids can have periods of normal anxiety, right? Which is like separation anxiety happens a couple of different times during childhood. And then again, that extreme or clinical anxiety is more rare. One in eight kids um, develop clinical anxiety levels um, outside of that like normal separation or just kids that start learning about insects and they don't like them, right? It's not necessarily anxiety. That's learned new, new learning that they're uh, experiencing. Um, that's unknown, but then again, right? They work through it, and all of a sudden, they're grabbing roly polies every which way. So, mm -hmm. one in kid, uh, one in eight kids experience uh, clinical levels of anxiety. Yeah, and that's that's a pretty significant number. I mean, that's that's real. What would you tell parents that aren't sure? Like, what kind of symptoms do parents need to look out for, or at what threshold? Should they really be thinking about seeking professional help, whether it's talking to their pediatrician or finding a therapist? What kind of things do you look for? Um, I look for things that are really interfering day-to-day -day life. So kids that aren't getting adequate sleep, um, crying tantrums, um, lasting or, or frequency or intensity that's beyond what it used to be, um, kids that are having excessive uh, somatic complaints, so headaches and stomach aches that's causing the parent to have to stay near them all the time. A lot of these behaviors cause a lot of clinginess in young kids, right? Mm -hmm. And so they're drawing that parent in to say, help me, help me, really don't leave me, right? And then again, the parent's not able to go to work or get dishes done or laundry done because they have this kiddo that won't leave their side. Uh, the older the child gets, uh, a lot more isolation, a lot more refusing to go do things that they used to do, go to the store, go to birthday parties sleepover at a friend's house. And so I look at kids of what they used to be able to do and what typical kids their age might be doing. I even like to ask parents, what did you do at this age? Because sometimes they'll say, I don't, I don't know what kids should be doing at this age. And I'll say, well, what did you do at this age? Right? Were you sleeping over? Were you riding your bike? Uh, were you um, 
jumping on trampolines, right? The list goes on and on. And then they can get a better reflection about what is my kid doing that might be different than that, that might be more extreme or excessive than that to give them a baseline to look from. Yeah. Okay. Those, that's great um, things for parents to keep in mind. So, you know, usually when I see children that I am concerned that they have anxiety and I might do some screening tools, one of the first things I recommend is seeing a therapist. So whenever a child sees a therapist, what kind of things do you do with them to help with the anxiety? Well, first, it's a lot of education for the parent. Uh, Depending on the age of the child, we might include a teenager in that or a middle schooler in that for sure. Um, But for young kids, it's a lot of parent work. So first, giving them, giving them some education on anxiety, right? These are waves of episodes of real fear for them, right? Really illogical to the outside eye. And really looking at the ways in which the child continues to keep that anxiety going, even though it's not working for them. Mm-hmm. And the big one is avoidance, right? Really well-intentioned parents have modified their environment so much that they're not really helping their child work through and overcome that anymore. They're actually a part of the anxiety story that's happening. Mm. And so helping parents know that they're not hurting or harming their child by assisting them to go to school, right? They're not harming and hurting them tra- their child by saying, I love you and I'll see you at five o'clock. Have a great day. And they leave their child with a very safe caregiver. And so first getting over that hump of what are we doing and who are all the players that are helping this child with their anxiety, right? And in which ways are working against it a little bit. And so giving a lot of education to, you know, teenagers or middle schoolers about what they're doing and what their anxiety is causing them to do. It's not them, right? It's that anxiety fear response that's causing them to do these things, to think that they're controlling it and keeping it at bay so that they don't have those feelings and emotions and giving that control back to say, yeah, those worst things that you think will happen probably won't. What's the likelihood that it won't? So Everybody gets feeling identification. Everybody gets education on anxiety and what it is and what it isn't. And then really working twofold with parents and caregivers on a plan of how to help their child work through this at home systematically um, and helping, you know, middle schoolers and teenagers be able to do the same, but maybe with more independence on their side um, and family as support as needed. So depending on the type of anxiety it is, we kind of target a little bit differently. For separation anxiety, um, we're doing a lots of talking about how white people leave and white people come back and what happens there, teaching relaxation skills. But ultimately, the parent has to go to work, right? Ultimately, the parent um, is going to go out with friends or to dinner or run to the grocery store really quick. And so setting up what we call a fear ladder or a systematic approach to be able to work up to being able to do that with all the skills that we have. Um, so that we don't rip off band-aids on kids. That's probably one of the things we don't do with anxiety is just without a lot of context and without a lot of prep, we just make them jump through it, right? Um, This is the swimming analogy where a lot of parents will just toss their kids in the pool, even though their kid is like fearfully, right? Like panicking about it, right? And parents will say, oh, well, my parent did that to me, right? And it worked just fine. That might've worked for you, but the kid in front of you might be saying that doesn't work for them that ripping off the Band-Aid and just kind of tossing them in approach. And so I like to really make sure, depending on the age, that they're included in that because they're the ones that are going to have to have the benefit of it and absorb that benefit themselves of knowing that they worked through it and knowing that those worst case scenarios didn't happen. 
Yeah. Oh, I love it. And I love hearing you talk about working with the older kids because I just think it's such a gift to learn some of these tools early on in life, you know, to get that cognitive behavioral therapy to help you identify what thoughts you're having that are leading to these feelings of anxiety early on, because it helps like for the whole rest of your life. You know, I, I, I actually see that as a gift. Yeah, I don't, I mean, it's not known, right? Well known that you can actually can, you can actually change what you think, right? You may not be able to always change the situations you're in, but you can choose how you want to think about the things that you're faced with, right? If I don't do really well on a test, I can choose to think if I'm a failure and I'm never going to graduate and I'm going to be a nobody in life, right? Or I can choose to think, wow, that test was really hard. Maybe I was prepared. Maybe I wasn't, but it sounds like I've got some room for improvement. I'm going to do better the next time, right? Yes. And so you can decide which perspective you want. Do you want the perfectionistic track of thinking that you have to be everything all the time and you'll be nothing if you're not and failure is terrible? Or are you going to think, good thing I'm, good thing I'm 12, good thing I'm 14. I can do this now because I've got a life ahead of me. This isn't going to make or break me. Yeah, it's so fascinating. So speaking of that, I want to know what you think about parents and how important is it for parents to address their own mental health issues? Because I definitely see, especially anxiety, and parents will admit it themselves. They'll come in because they know what anxiety is. And they'll be like, I have anxiety. And it looks like my child is trying to do it <laughs> and think a lot of the same things I do. So I kind of yeah. see it. You know, I see this pattern. So how important is it for parents to really be aware of and work on their own mental health. Yeah, I mean, more and more, we, we as in providers need the family involved, right? And so if, if a parent is being triggered or if a parent is having emotional overreactions, um, they're really gonna struggle to be able to help their child through those really rough moments, right? If they're in their own moment about something, right? It's gonna be really difficult to hold on your own stuff for a second to be able to help your child work through theirs. And so I commonly find too that, you know, kids with anxiety probably have a parent that have some anxiety somewhere in there. Um, and to be able to kind of notice as we're working together, parents are often really um, open about, gosh, I've been doing that for forever, or I didn't know that was a thing. Um, no one's really told me about that before, but I do do that. And becoming aware of their own emotional state and their own thought processes, and then being able to say, the things that we're doing for your kid are just as equally for you. And so almost, you know, any therapist that's working with a child with anxiety probably has two clients, right? Being able to help the parent work through their own stuff because there are eyes and ears. I can only do so much in my office once a week, right? It's the parent's job to be able to help them all those other hours of that week. And if they really can't do that because of their own stuff, then I tend to say kid work is on hold until I can get you to be my partner in this, to be my teammate in this, because I don't have a teammate in the kid. The anxiety is working against me. Um, and I definitely need the parent. Yeah. I like the airplane analogy a lot. It's always, um, what, put your mask on yourself before you put it on your child. Mm -hmm. And I, I tend to use that one a lot to kind of help illustrate just how important the parent role is. Yeah. And you know, no shame about any of this, just like you were saying earlier that you don't know any parent who you know, when they first started having kids knew how to validate feelings and emotions naturally, you know, I think 
that we do, you know, and you can tell me more how you think about this, but you know, we develop a lot of these defense mechanisms because of experiences we've had in life. And then we're just never, we just never learn a different way. It's just the way that we've learned to cope. I tend to be more on the depression side. That's my, the way that I express when I feel overwhelmed. And so I see that earlier on in my parenting journey, before I had learned some of those skills, I probably did exhibit that to my children in a way that maybe wasn't as productive. But now that I can identify it and I can identify it in my children, I can help them with the tools that I've learned as well. So I think that it can be really important. But why do you think, because this is one of the things that comes up in my office too, there's still such a stigma to getting help with mental health. And I, I'm like all for like, I wish everybody could have a therapist because I feel like we all, until it's taught in the schools, until like cognitive behavioral therapy and right. you know managing your thoughts and feelings and all this stuff is taught in every single school, I think that we would all benefit from seeing a therapist. But why is there such a stigma still? I think the stigma comes from um, setting out with your own expectations when you have kids. When I first had kids, I thought I knew what I was going to do. I had it all laid out. I had a plan. I knew well, like the things I wasn't going to do for sure, right? And how I was going to change things in my journey, right? And then I had these two people that did not do exactly what I thought they were going to do. They uh, pushed buttons that I didn't know that I had and areas that I hadn't really worked on. And so I, I, I feel like the best set examples are Parents are trying to do better than the generations before. I believe that, not because the generations were so terrible, but because we just want things better for our children, right? We want to be better. We want our kids to be better off. And by way of that, though, we almost set the expectations so firmly that we forget that we have to parent the kids that we have. We can't parent the kids that we wish we had. We can't parent the kids that we thought we were going to have. We just have to parent the ones that we made, right? And they have such amazing qualities if we can get past the expectations that I held for myself and that feeling that I must be a failure if I didn't mm -hmm. need it. Right. Mm -hmm. And to say that in front of someone and worry about what other people think when really parents are just trying so hard to keep it together day by day, yes. it's really hard to have to try to admit to like, man, I thought I was doing really well, but I don't know. I don't know what this is and I don't know how to do this. And that's not a reflection that they're a bad parent. It's not a reflection that they're harming their child. It's just a reflection that They've come up with something and for some reason, there's some sort of disconnect there. And that's what learning is though, right? That disconnect of not getting it and being able to have somebody support you to come back around and say, what about this and move forward? Yes. Oh, I love that. And I wish we would just, I, I wish we could get to the point where we normalized all of this. Like we could all admit we're not perfect <laughs> or try to yeah. be perfect or come across as perfect. And as moms and as parents all sit down together and be like, you know what? I was feeling guilty about this. I was feeling ashamed about this. And other mom's like, you know what? Same, same. I felt the exact same way because I feel like when we start opening up these conversations, we're going to see that we all like are in the exact same boat and we're all just trying to do the best we can to love these kids and have them have long, healthy, happy lives, you know? So yeah, thank you so much for saying that. What do you wish more parents knew? 
Well, I was going to say that, uh, that uh, talking to your pediatrician when you first get those first ASQ tests, right, those developmental screenings, right, and you're first looking at what your kid is doing or isn't doing right, or on the parenting front, recognizing that um, you're feeling more irritable and more frustrated and you're not handling things the way that you want to be ideally handling things, and that asking for help at any point in time during that is seen as actually strength and not a weakness. Mm -hmm. I have never had an ill thought about a parent coming in when the child looked pretty healthy, right? In the big scheme of things, but they were worried and concerned and just wanted to check. Yeah. Like there is nothing terrible about taking up an hour, two hour of a professional's time to just get a second opinion, right? Um, And so to have parents know that they can access that, they can resource that, right? Get, Get resources for that, to be able to get that extra check because- Again, I know there's a lot of parenting manuals out there and not all of them work for your child, right? And always align with your values. And so to get another set of opinions and checks, I think that's what we're all here for. Mm, yes, that's that's wonderful. It's okay to ask for help. It's not a sign of weakness. It's actually a strength. I love that. That's great. Well, what would be your wildest dream come true when it comes to mental health for children? My wildest dream come true. I I think there's some emerging things that are happening in education. Um, there's some great elementary preschool programs that are happening, but I frankly, they're just not enough, right? They're just not enough to help kids understand their thoughts, their feelings, their emotions. Um, and I feel like mental health 101 is what's missing across. We're doing better on some social emotional fronts but it's a lot of focused on getting along with others and bullying, um, but really teaching kids the basics of what we think, how we feel, and how we can change our behaviors, how we can normalize that we're not all born with this, and that we have to use some skills to work through it, um, I think would be amazing and great. School counselors, frankly, they're so overworked, and they have so many kids to so few of them that they just can't possibly meet the need. And so we have to, I think, as a community work together and bring all the providers together to really look at how we can kind of create a network um, to meet all these children and families. I know in our community, we're, we're stretched to be able to try to do all of this together. But there's definitely people that we could pull and, and bring to the table to talk about how we can kind of network together um, rather than working as an island and rather than thinking that the schools are going to be able to answer all of that. They need more help and families need to know more about the resources that are available to them so that people aren't just sitting out there and not getting help. Yes. Oh my gosh. But just think about the upstream effects. I mean, honestly, that would be just so amazing if children were learning to manage their thoughts and feelings and learning a growth mindset early on. And then those children became parents and were teaching it to their kids at the beginning. I mean, like, just think of in a few generations what that would do. I mean, you might be out of work. Perfect. I actually, <laughs> tell, my, I actually tell my clients that all the time. Get me out of here. Get me out of this job. Get me out of this job. I mean, no, the, other thing, the other thing that I don't think parents or maybe some other professionals realize is that there's a lot of worry sometimes about counseling, right? It, it starts out as weekly. It's a time commitment. It's not a quick fix, right? And so I know some people that will say, well, you can't pull the child out of school for that counseling appointment. It'll interfere with their schooling. And my comeback to that is it probably already is. You know, kids that are really clinically anxious, 
are having troubles focusing and concentrating on math and reading. They're not really paying attention in class. And so they're already missing some great learning that they should be getting. They're already probably falling behind in some of that because of their anxiety. And so they're not really going to make those those gains that they need to on those academic levels if you're not treating the mental emotional pieces underneath. And so I tend to tell families and educators, let me have them. Let me have them. Let's prioritize this for a little bit because I'll get you the gain on the academic side, right? I'll get kids with more seat time in school. I'll get you kids that are paying attention and focusing more. But we have to shift the priority a little bit. And that's really hard sometimes for people to wrap their mind around is that their kid is actually missing playing with friends and learning how to problem solve and uh, work through understanding facial cues because their head is dropped, because they're shy in the corner, because they're not really exploring their world. Yes. Oh, man, I'm glad you said that. That That's such a good point because as a parent, I struggle with the same thing, right? I mean, like you want your child to be in school. You don't want them to miss school. You don't want them to miss activities, but then you have to kind of weigh the risks and benefits. If you're not getting the therapy that's needed to help the mental health, then just like you said, then they're really not going to be enjoying or benefiting or being able to be, you know, productive in the activities that they already are doing and wanting to do. So it's worth it. It's worth it to use that time. That's great. Well, I want to hear a little bit more about you. What personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it and how do you maintain it? So I am big into mindfulness. Um, I learned it early actually in my career. I was um, learning a program called DBT or dialectical behavioral therapy. And a big component of that cognitive behavioral therapy is mindfulness, the art of staying in the moment, um, noticing your breath, accepting the moment that you're in, not wishing it different and not future tripping on what's to come and, and or dwelling on the past. And so being able to really clear your mind and connect back with your body to be able to almost have a clean slate um, in times in which you know, you're feeling overwhelmed or stressed or confused or worrying about things to be able to say, I don't have to fix this all right now. I can pause. I can take a minute. I can kind of reflect and watch my thoughts come and go. They don't really have to mean everything just because I think them doesn't mean they're true. And being able to kind of let them go almost like clouds in the sky and reconnect with myself. And I learned it early on. And in that program, you actually have to practice it all the time. And then as I began to use it with clients, and then teaching it to little kids, um, becoming a parent myself, and finding the challenges of just needing a breath sometimes, um, just needing to kind of classically like hide in my bathroom for two minutes uh, while my kids are safe so I can kind of regulate my own emotions in that way that I can then go back out and handle whatever's next to come. I actually um, teach it for Boise State University. I um, am an affiliate professor for their master's in social work program. And all I teach is seminar mindfulness um, and then oversee practicum. And so I feel like it's really integrated into my life at this point. It's not something I have to really think about. Um, It comes and goes in small moments. And sometimes I take larger uh, commitments to do it. Um, But I've figured out a system that can help me transition sometimes from work to home. Um, The car ride sometimes is not enough. 
And so being able to make sure that I'm fully present wherever I am and to do that, sometimes I have to take care of myself first so that I can continue to give out to others. Oh, wow. That would be one. If you, if you haven't researched it, that'd be one that I would encourage people to look into. Yeah. Now that, that just sounds so beautiful and it has so many benefits, not just the psychological mental health benefits, but body benefits too, because they've done research to show it decreases your blood pressure and your cortisol levels and all of that. So, I mean, it's just a really great practice and tool to have. And, you know, you mentioned that you're not dwelling on the past, you're not future tripping, because in reality, all we have is the present moment, right? I think we kind of fool ourselves into thinking we have all this, but really the only thing we have is now. So learning to be more in the now can really decrease a lot of that stress, anxiety, depression, and a lot of those things that we experience from our thoughts. So that's really cool that you do that. And then even swinging that to being with kids, right? Being able to just say, I would planned on making this pot roast. I'd planned on paying all these bills. I'd planned on doing all these things, but my kid is right in front of me hanging on my leg, right? Or my teenager has gone to their room and closed the door and I really don't know what that's about, right? To be able to say that to-do list is just going to have to pause for a second because I've got to take care of what's right here in front of me right now, right? Because if I don't take care of that, I'm not going to help them go on to their next thing that they need to do because clearly they're needing me right now. And so how do I pause, reset my expectations, reset my priorities, take a big deep breath for myself and then enter into what's needed of me right here in the moment. Yes. The reality of now. I love it. It's beautiful. Well, Renee, this has been so great. We've come to the end. It's gone by super fast. So I would love to uh, know how listeners can connect with you. And I know that you're super busy and (laughs) seeing a lot of clients. I don't know if you're taking any new ones, but if so, if you want to give any information about uh, locals that would like to uh, work with you or where people can find you online, et cetera. Yeah. So I have a Facebook page. So Renee Slavin um, is my Facebook handle. And then I have a website, which is also under my name. So if you just Google it, you'll find me there. There's some contact information there. Um, Times are really hard on families right now. And so I'm really full, but I always work a wait list. And if it's not for me, or if I'm not the therapist um, that can work with you right now, I definitely refer you to other people in my area. Um, Or I can help you, you know, find people in your area as well. There's a great network of psychologytoday.com where you can search by your area and find a a CBT trained therapist working with kids. So that's a great resource as well. Awesome. Thank you so much. Well, finally, I would love for you to leave my listeners with one call to action. So what is one thing that they could start doing now to support their children's mental health? One, increase talking about feelings and giving overheads uh, for feelings. Um, And two, ask yourself if you're being a helicopter parent. It gets a bad rap, right? It's out in the media a lot. But one of the things that I have really reflected on and had parents look at is how many times do you tell your child to be careful? And how many times do you tell your child to be safe? It kind of sends a little bit of a message, right? If they're heading off to the playground and you say, be careful, well, should they not be going to the playground? Should Is the playground dangerous? Is it not safe, right? There are terms that we use a lot, almost like terms of endearment, like I love you or I'll see you yeah. soon or something, but they kind of give a little message sometimes associated with them. And so again, watching your own language 
of do you have any fears or worries, right? And are you putting them on your children in some of that language, knowingly or unknowingly? And so watching watching for that and being aware, being mindful um, of the language that you're using with your kids when they're sending when you're sending them off to explore their world that is safe because you wouldn't be sending them off regardless. Wow. That's, that's a really good one because I think I say that every time, but you know, I'm a pediatrician. I always tell my other patients cause you know, my little patients, sometimes I'll say stuff like, you know, my kids aren't allowed to have a trampoline, all this stuff because I'm a pediatrician, you know, like we are like right. freaked out about safety. Yes. So yes. I probably overdo it. So I'm going to hold my tongue next time. I'm just like automatically be careful. So that's a good Me one. Me too. Every time my kids ride bikes on gravel roads, I'm like, be careful. And then I'm like, uh, what, what am I sending? What am I saying to them? I, I, it'll just be what it'll be. And they have helmets on. Yeah. Right? Because the truth is they're not like purposely trying to not be careful. Right. So what are they going to do different if you say be careful than if you don't say be careful? So, I mean, right. that's like such good advice. Cause it's so, it's totally true that we're probably putting into their minds every time. Like, you could potentially die the second. So <laughs> be careful. Yeah, we don't realize it. Right. And yet we're trying, we're, we're being really good parents, right. By saying these things and being mindful and right. But we might be future tripping a little too much and we might need them to maybe fall and scrape their knee. Right. I agree with trampolines, right. We, trampolines are dangerous, but right. Bike riding should be okay. Yes. Oh, this was so great. Renee, thank you so much again for everything you do. And thank you so much for being a guest on Veggie Doctor Radio for this pediatric series. And this is going to be helpful for so many parents. Thank you. Thank you. And I hope you have a very plantastic day. Thanks. You too. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. And I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at Rocket Surgeons Music. Please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, all of my social media links can be found in the podcast description. Send me a message and let me know what you think of today's podcast sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and drop me a line if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day. We're having broccoli.